welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm Ariel Vasca, former teacher, polyglot, and super nerd, joined by a collective of geeky creators and educators here on Ride the Omnibus, a pop culture podcast where we know nothing happens in a vacuum, and we explore the many times and spaces that link ideas and works while sharing what makes our wheels go round. Our wheels have been stuck, though. Uh, COVID-19 has killed Black and Brown Americans at higher rates than others, magnifying disparities in healthcare and economic well-being. And through the pandemic, police brutality, systemic racism, and bigotry and intolerance have been revealed for what they really are. We had actually already recorded four shows about science fiction TV shows, albums, movies, And we felt it would be tone deaf to drop them right now. Those conversations can wait. I want to respond to our current reality as a country, and I'd rather be talking about and the issues on the minds of people of color through the lens of the work of Black creators. If we don't open up ourselves to diverse perspectives and educate ourselves in this moment, then when? We need to respond now by reading and thinking and learning and watching and reflecting. And that's what today's show is all about. So joining me today uh, to talk about this moment in American history are two wonderful people that I love dearly. Uh, Ellen Babcock. Hi, Ellen Babcock here. I am a physics teacher, a science coach, and a citizen of the world on a journey discovering the real and complete history of America. And Sherry Lee. Hi, I'm Sherry. I'm currently a graduate student in classics, also a citizen of the world, having grown up somewhere in between the US and Taiwan and sort of in neither place. Um, And also when I was a high school student, I had the fortune to be taught by both of these lovely women. So um, I'm very much looking forward to talking to both of you um, today, specifically about I Am Not Your Negro and the work of James Baldwin. But before we do, uh, I want to ask, how are you in this moment um, in terms of where we are with the pandemic, the racism, the protests, and in terms of the way that you've been educating yourself and others? I mean, I think right now, like a lot of people, we're sort of coming off this extended period of exhaustion and fatigue, both on, I think, an ethical and and spiritual level, as well as, you know, physically. Um, At at this moment, it really looks like, to put it in pretty bleak terms, America is on on an international level, like stepping down and sort of abdicating a leadership role in ways that are becoming very clear to the world. And I think the world is sort of imploding because of it. But at the same time, I think this very unique issue of America, um, its inability to resolve its obsession with equality and its its incredible diversity is becoming really apparent both to Americans and who are now considering what it means to be American and as well as for the rest of the world. So sort of thinking about this, I've been trying to educate myself, trying to read a lot more. I spent a lot of this week looking at different news sources and reading James Baldwin and Colson Whitehead, talking to people about what it means to be American. And a lot of these conversations have been really productive and enlightening in a lot of ways. And even though I know that because of the pandemic, 
we don't have a lot of mobility or power to maybe go and do the things to support this movement that we otherwise would want to for different reasons. Um, a very good friend of mine told me recently, as long as we're continuing to plumb our lives for work, then we're still doing everything we can to support it, to educate ourselves, um, and to be really conscious and present of what this moment means for us. So I've been trying to stick to that as much as possible. Wow, that's that's that was great. <laughs> um, so, similarly, I so the the issue of the pandemic and and where we are and seeing everything that's changed. Um, and then looking at the unrest and the protests, and it—it's about the, the way that they connect. It's as if I—we I, felt these social restrictions because of the pandemic. Now, I, being a homebody, didn't feel quite as—I uh, wasn't suffering as much as many others because I kind of like being at home. But you still can't do the things you want to do. And that was, and then there were all, was all the unrest and the, the protesting about being able to go and do what you want to do. And that was embraced by some and seen as ridiculous by uh, hopefully most and, and certainly me because being safe is most important. Then this, then the protests for blacks being able to live their lives and do what they want to do and have freedoms that they should have in order to simply do the things that they want to do. And that realizing that they haven't had that yet, right? And so here's the pandemic and then one act of police brutality that was the final straw and that was enough for populations of, of African-Americans in the country and other people that, that suffer through that. And then it was finally enough for me who grew up thinking she was this amazingly woke person and I was woke to the truth of equality, but not to the history of how we've gotten to this inequality, right? And it's just exemplified by, we complain because of coronavirus, and but racism has been doing the same thing and systemic, and saying systemic racism is just a blurb now, but carefully cultivated disadvantage uh, of, of blacks in America has been going on forever. And so, so when people say, why can people go protest without fear of in the, during a pandemic? Well, yeah, it's been every day's dangerous anyway. How is it really different? This is something that's been going on for ever. And even if we haven't overtly reaped the benefits of this carefully cultivated disadvantage, we didn't have to compete in the same in the same way and anyway so that so then when um when the wheels of our omnibus stopped spinning and ariel our gracious host suggested that we stop looking at other more enjoyable things and talking about what makes the wheels spin it was time and she suggested looking at this this film and then as sherry said that led to me looking at a lot of other things and talking to a lot of other people and and now it's brought me to a very different place. So school's going to end. This is it. This is the last day of school. I ha After we finish recording here, if we finish, <laughs> I will have three last classes with my kids. And it will be open forum discussion to talk about anything because I go there, right? 
and we talk for two forever. The classes are 45 minutes and I usually go over. And so I'll be talking pretty much nonstop with kids until two. But then usually the end of school, the reason I say that is usually the end of school brings this free moment of, you know, dancing through the poppies. Well, there's that connection. Dancing through the poppies is an opiate and it is there to numb you to the truth. And I am no longer numbed to the truth. And psh, so instead of a time to kick back, it's going to be a time to kick into higher gear and learn more and do more as safely as possible in the midst of everything. But again, what is my safety? I've lived, I've been very protected the last three months in my house. I think I can risk a little bit and try to get out there more and be present and and helping to just open people's eyes. Just go around. I want to do. I mean, you know, you know, little. I'm going to be my tiny clockwork orange, putting not needles in people's eyes, but just imagine. <laughs> I'm forcing your eyes open, and you have to actually think about what really happened. But that's where I am, and I thank you for that, Ariel, my host, because. Oh. I've got purpose. I've got a summer with purpose instead of a summer of not doing anything and then try having to get into gear next year. So purposeful summer. Yeah. And actually, yeah. everything you just said kind of reminds me of that one quote from James Baldwin in uh, My Dungeon Shook, uh, where he says, white people are still trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. And I, I love that quote showing how the bridge of understanding needs to be built kind of brick by brick as we go along. And so I think it's very important that we, you know, acknowledge the work of James Baldwin. He was a great academic writer who was prolific, worked for about 40 years as a writer he was born in 1924. His mother left his father, and the second marriage was to a Baptist preacher in Harlem, and he had eight brothers and sisters. Uh, he was treated very harshly by his stepfather, who died just before his 19th birthday from tuberculosis. But at age 15 is when he really discovered himself in Greenwich Village and started his writing career, really, at age 15. At age 24, not long after he had kind of realized his gay identity fully, he left and he settled in Paris, wanting to be known as a writer, not a Negro writer, but just a great intellectual writer. And he started publishing in literary anthologies, in later life, he lived in the south of France as well. And he has said repeatedly in different writings that he felt he was allowed to be himself by being outside of the American system of racism, which we'll talk about in a little bit. He had a very prolific career, as I mentioned, from 1947 until his death in 1987. His novels, Go Tell It on the Mountain, Giovanni's Room, are standard pieces of literature that you frequently find taught. If Beale Street Could Talk was recently made into an Oscar-nominated an Oscar film. Uh, his essays, Notes of a Native Son, The Fire Next Time, Evidence of Things Not Seen are all classics. His plays and poetry are incredible as well. But what we're specifically looking at today is through the lens of I Am Not Your Negro, which is a documentary that was directed by Raoul Peck 
and narrated by Samuel Jackson, and the entire thing is structured around the writings of James Baldwin and also interviews with him. Um, and so uh, it begins by looking at some of James Baldwin's heroes. And uh, I think the first hero they really mention is Bill Miller, his English teacher, who took him to plays and films that were beyond his age level necessarily. And he also talks about how he had no real heroes in cinema, that the black characters were generally caricatures or victims where the white heroes were taking vengeance into their own hands. And he identified himself more with the Indians at the hands of the cowboys and said, you really are formed by what you see. He has a very important historical role. We see the famous clips of him on the Dick Cavett show in particular was the one that I think really struck a chord with most of us. And his interaction in the lives of Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X, as well as discussing how he reacted to segregation and spoke out against the practice of segregation. And what I'd like to do is if maybe Sherry, you could start by telling me some of the essential quotes that you took from this section that you thought were most important to you? Yeah. Um, so maybe starting from the last part of the documentary that you mentioned, the interview. I mean, there there's a lot of things because you sort of get the interview in installments all throughout um, the, the film. But this might be a good place to start. His, his debate sort of with this um, philosophy professor who comes in and he the philosophy professor voices this argument that I've often heard sort of across the table from Americans when we're talking about race, which is a sort of avoidant position, which is why are we so fixated on color? Why must it always be a matter of, of color uh, when we talk about race in America? And he has this example that he would have more in common with somebody who studies literature, but comes from a different ethnic background than with somebody who is also white and doesn't have the sort of education and privilege, I guess, that he has, although he's not quite as nuanced about this. And then Baldwin has this incredible response in which he says, I don't know how white people feel, but I can only infer those feelings from the institutions that I see around me. And from what he sees in those, those institutions, his world is incredibly clear to him, the world of segregation, the world of separation. And so despite the sort of high-minded claim to universal humanity, the fact that we can all be connected by things such as literature, he returns to the fact that it's incredibly difficult to write. It's incredibly difficult to be the, the, the writer that he wants to be without being tokenized, which we'll, I think, talk about at another time without confronting the reality of race and how that anxiety pervades his reality, is a part of his reality. And I found that that exchange extremely powerful because, I mean, there is like a, there is a grain of truth, although it's very uncharitably put by the professor um, in that interview, which is that race without the context, and, and this is my view, race without the context of geography, without economic background in America is a much more 
impoverished view of diversity. And we have to be very careful of this today because it's true that somebody with materially and economically more privileged background, that sort of makes their their experience very, very different from those who, who are much more economically underprivileged, much more disadvantaged. And that would have been interesting if the professor had taken that angle. But I think to hear from Baldwin that no matter where he goes, no matter who he sort of becomes, whether he flees to Europe or other parts of America or tries to be somebody else, he can never get away from that anxiety and that anxiety is with him. That was very powerful for me to hear, I think, for the first time, just because I think in the sort of educational circles where I've grown up and sort of in the, the America that I know from the 90s, where it's very, it's very Sesame Street, you know, you're in this sort of like middle-class daycare and everybody's very diverse and you have neighbors of different backgrounds. And for a while, it seems like we've reached that point of cultural diversity. And then you grow up and you go to universities that are you know, conscious of things and have measures like affirmative action and are working towards sustaining that vision of diversity. But I think in, in hearing that exchange, it made it very clear for me how that, how that isn't sufficient how we can't cut out entirely or negate the, the experience of the presence of those institutions, no matter sort of the immediate context of these bubbles, like you know, educational spaces where you can do a lot to actually craft the culture in it and the demographic um, makeup of a place like that. Yeah, and this was obviously very meaningful for me as, as a graduate student, as somebody who is thinking is, is in a field that's predominantly obviously made up of people with European descent or white American descent. Um, and there have been a lot of questions of the degree of the degree of control we should have over like welcoming other perspectives, bringing in people of different perspectives, whether the fact that our field is mostly made up of white Americans and Europeans at the detriment of like the moral core of classics. Um, and it's, and it's a very complicated issue. And I'm, I'm very conscious as somebody who's like Taiwanese and, and an immigrant that like I, I was not going to come in and be sort of like a majority voice in the field. And I often like my sort of line on this is to not think about, you know, relating my race explicitly to what I'm studying. And I mean, in, as a teacher, as a student, you know, working with people that will obviously come more into play just in the way you carry out discourses and the way you're conscious of how you teach things in a national context or a particular linguistic context. But I mean, it is, it is a sort of very odd displacement that I think is both a consequence of the diversity that we're living in and our like the very vehement American tendency, I guess it's an affliction probably to sort of cut out any nuance related to understanding that diversity, including the ugliness that has never left that system. Yeah. Well, I agree with all that, obviously. Well, I guess not obviously, but I do. And you you picked the same phrases and quotes from that interview that were my most poignant as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that the way that, that um, Weiss, the academic, 
that's the academic, starts out, is he's really echoing the old American bootstrap theory, right? You, you have to be able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, as a physics teacher, you know, first of all, I'm going to say this is just not possible. But it's also not possible if you're trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but you're already bent over and your hands are tied to your ankles. And he's told that you're just supposed to be able to be a writer if you're going to be a writer, right? Just turn your back on the world and do it. I mean, I, when I was nursing my first child, the book said, turn your back on the world. It's just you and your baby. <laughs> well, you know, this man, uh, as a black man in America, could not turn his back on the world and write because if he did that, society was going to kill him, right? Because if he wasn't watching all the time. And he said, says that it's hard to concentrate on the typewriter when you're afraid of the world around you and you see danger in the face of every cop, every boss, everybody. And that spoken sometime, no doubt, in the 60s or 70s. I don't know when that interview was. Was it was sixties, right? Late sixties. Yes, 60s, I think it. Right? I think it was in the mid to late sixties. Right, and here we are, <laughs> twenty twenty, and uh, and the same. Seeing the anger and danger in the face of everyone, police, bosses, and everyone else, um, and and all of that. And then my my actual favorite is that uh, when Baldwin says. Sure, you know, this you're saying that I can do this because of some idealistic view of America uh, and something that you assure me exists in this country, but I've never seen it, right? So, as a Black American, he'd never seen this beautiful land of, of incredible opportunity because it just does not exist. So, it, it, was, it was something when you come at things from a purely academic viewpoint, you tend or one can and often does tend to leave out those other bits because you can't strip away color. You can't strip away race. You can't strip away the history from the truth of what's happening in the moment. And so much of us want to do it. It's my, my big phrase I've been saying is that we, every now and then in American society, we take a look at the social wound of racism and then we put a Band-Aid on it that stays on for 20 or 40 years. We can't put the band. It's a burn. Burns don't heal if you cover them, right? We need to expose it and let the air get to it. And that will be the only way. When everyone starts to see what has not been possible for Americans who were brought to this country as slaves and their descendants because of everything that has systemically been put in place to keep them from being able to do things. And all of that, we have to see that. And you can't just say, draw a line and move forward. You can say that with a relationship, right? It's one of my great things with behaviors in the classroom, draw a line and move forward. But when it comes to this kind of a thing, you cannot draw a line and look forward because first you have to look back. You know, it's so trite also, we have the, if you don't understand and learn from, the, from history, you can't correct those mistakes. People again, we pay lip service to that phrase. We say it, and then we're like, "Okay, I've seen it. I know that it was bad. Therefore, now it can be better." No, you have to really know because we don't really know. Look at everything that we don't know. Look at, mm -hmm. I mean, even with the things I've been studying all, all one whole week of study, right? <laughs> Why don't I know everything yet? Well, I don't. I do know that there's talk of having the Republican National Convention in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and isn't that an interesting turn of events, right? The site of an enormous massacre of one of, um, of, a, of a very thriving 
um, African-American community, right? It just, just went in and just smashed it to bits. And, and now we might just, you, one wonders if people know exactly if it's that calculated. But um, I'm probably getting off topic, as is my want. Well, not topic, but thread. So, <laughs> well, no, um, not at all. And and actually, when you talk about knowing the history, I mean, obviously, this is something that both Sherry and I share as a very important part of our academic DNA. I mean, as students of classics, it's certainly very important to always understand the historical perspective. And without an understanding of where exactly things come from, you have no understanding of how things can move forward. And James Baldwin is all about that. I mean, he talks about, you know, he he talks about how the country has not evolved any place for black people, uh, Mm -hmm. that they were brought here because they needed you to pick cotton. Now they don't need you. They're going to kill you off just like they did the Indians which connects to Colson Whitehead, an author that both Sherry and I have been reading quite a bit. So I'll ask your thoughts about that in a minute, Sherry. But but I've also been reading a lot of Octavia Butler lately and reading Kindred in particular, which is all about actually experiencing history from the first person. It's actually a science fiction time traveler narrative um, where she has to go back in time and live as a slave. And the actual knowing of the history is different from the inventing of the history in the textbook, which is a whole other conversation that we could go on at length about. But what's very interesting to me is that there are so many people in this country who don't understand, for example, where the history of policing comes from, that it comes from the slave patrols in the South. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to wallow in that history. And James Baldwin himself even says to accept one's past, one's history is not the same as drowning in it. It is simply learning how to use it. And I think that's so important for us as a country to move forward. But I want to get back to that quote, your country has not evolved any place for you. What, What do you think of when you are thinking about that quote, Sherry. Yeah, I'm, like you said, I'm thinking of Underground Railroad a lot. A lot. And those to not spoil it for, for people, because I, I think it's one of the most important novels I've read um, definitely this year and at this moment. I think it points to something that Baldwin brings up a lot, which is that the sort of like moral health of this country is inherently linked to the question of the place of the black American and their treatment in in this country and sort of like moral apathy is a sign of a profound failure systematically and also individually. And the brutality we see is also a reflection of this this country. Another moment I'm thinking of from the the documentaries is when he says, you know, how could this civilization produce the photograph of that cop kneeling on the neck of a Negro woman in Birmingham. And so I think the connection between the system and these individual it, like tragedies, these individual 
moments of brutality that we've been seeing is exactly the right way and the most urgent way to, to look at it. And reading Underground Railroad, for me, it, it's, it becomes incredibly clear how no matter how many different permutations or systems of, of treatment or, you know, moving out of segregation, you know, the, somehow the system has always evolved a way to maintain that, you know, that racism, that like inst it has maintained a way to keep institutionalized that prejudice. And it, and it has such a violent form in America because we fail to address other things like gun violence and education and so many other things. But to see that, like that dark side as not just a sort of underbelly, but the real and, mo and a very critical aspect of the American soul um, is something that comes out for me yeah. with both of these, both of these works. Yeah, I would, if, if I may, um, that is making me think of and, uh, and mentioning education. And there's a, a letter, a talk to teachers by James Baldwin. And there's a paragraph in there I'd like to see if I can read here on my tiny little screen. But I think it speaks to exactly what you're talking about. And, and this is just a paragraph. It's actually the ninth. So it takes a bit to get here and it builds up beautifully. But it says, the point of all this is that black men were brought here as a source of cheap labor. In order to justify the fact that men were being treated as though they were animals, the white republic had to brainwash itself into believing that they were indeed animals and deserved to be treated like animals. Therefore, it is almost impossible for any Negro child to discover anything about his actual history. The reason that this, quote, animal, unquote, once, once he suspects his own worth, once he starts believing that he is a man, has begun to attack the entire power structure. This is why America has spent such a long time keeping the Negro in his place. What I am trying to suggest to you is that it was not an accident. It was not an act of God. It was not done by well-meaning people muddling into something which they didn't understand. It was a deliberate policy hammered into place in order to make money from the back from black flesh. And now in 1963, because we have never faced this fact, we are in intolerable trouble. Well, it's now <laughs> 60 years later, uh, approximately, and we're in even more trouble because we still have not grasped that. So he says that the black man does not have a place. He doesn't have a place in the society that white society considers itself to be. He's got a place, but that place is right down at the bottom so that white people, the poorest white people, don't have to think that they're at the bottom and you have to have someone. And, and sure, that speaks to human nature in some way, but, but white society has perfected that psychological need to see someone else's beneath you. And we have we have systemized it. We have made it, it. We have turned it into a government. And one I used to feel very proud of. And and now, I mean, to quote another great philosopher, Madonna, I'm just living out the American dream. But I just realized that nothing is what it seems. Now I don't know if she meant something a bit more than that because she was just talking about economics. I'm pretty sure. But I'm going to take that quote. And I wasn't even living the American dream, right? I, or at least I didn't feel so because my, I wouldn't call my life ultra shishi or, or easy or anything like that. But it is a lot better than most of the people in this country and certainly almost all of the African-Americans in this country. Absolutely. And 
it's important also like i love i love that quote that you read um that whole paragraph from the talk to teachers because it really gets at the fact that race is a construct that was yeah. invented to make people feel better about the fact that they were exploiting others for resources. Yep. And it's really incredible to me how many people in academia don't necessarily recognize that. And you have academics. I mean, I, I will admit, like, I've done a lot of research on different uh, academics like uh, Francis Galton, who I thought was a very brilliant man. He wrote lots of books like, you know, Hereditary Genius and so forth, and in a way is actually the father of gifted education. But he's also the person who coined the term eugenics. Yeah. And he's also the person who actually said, we need to take people from China and move them to Africa so that Africans can be you know, more industrious. He actually had articles to this end. There are so many problematic parts of academic history that we do not like to confront. People do not want to admit that these are things that exist in the history, but they are there. And these are uncomfortable truths that we have to live with and that James Baldwin was all about opening people's eyes to. And to live and work in that academic system that embraced all those ideas of eugenics and didn't bat an eye for all of the 19th century at anything that Francis Galton published is, you know, also quite problematic. And Sherry, I mean, your experiences in the academic world, I mean, you've been, you know, working toward a lot of different uh, aims with different professors and so forth and in different academic roles uh, in very prestigious institutions. And I just wondered how hard have you come up against a lot of these ideas? You mean apart from apart from eugenics, you mean? Well, yeah, not eugenics. I, I hope not eugenics. I really, <laughs> yeah. really hope. Yeah. Possibly we've moved past that at least explicitly, right? Yeah. Yes, right, exactly. No, I, I think it's very interesting because I feel as though going to an American university, like I went there not just to get an education, but I got an education about America because it's the first time that you really get, you know, sort of explicit political discourse. You sort of come into your own, you, you start to have awareness of yourself as a, you know, a human being, at least for me in relation to a, a society. Um, and it's the first time you're exposed to a lot of those ideas and you debate history and that, that kind of thing. And you look at the academe as your first immediate sphere of action, um, whether that means trying to change what's going on within the institution. And so it's interesting because a lot of the, the uh, political actions that have been taking place with tearing down Confederate monuments, that was one of the biggest debates that went on in college when I was there was whether we should rename buildings, whether we should take down uh, monuments that glorified people with racist views or who had been involved, who had, who had been slave owners. Um, um, and yeah, so that this kind of debate has been you know familiar for a while and I tie it to the American university um, 
pretty explicitly. But I don't know. I, I'm sort of conflicted on this because like this has to be bigger than the academe. And I think that the academics greatest problem is thinking that they can sort of redress a lot of these massive social issues, like purely within the scope of an academic program um, and sort of like not look beyond it to, to sort of the greater impact that, that they can have. Um, like the problem of affirm affirmative action is really twisted and really tangled because yes, you can admit larger numbers of um, like more demographically diverse individuals and then they get there and then you don't do anything to support them mm -hmm. because you have not like you have not done anything systematically right like for this to work correctly you needed to have reformed education massively from childhood you need to have done so much on the level of secondary education in order to bring people up to the same level you know sort of I mean in terms of just education uh, that um, affirmative action is trying to achieve at a very late stage relatively in, in the game. So I guess my concern is that all of this tends to become very abstract in the academe and that it's very easy to sort of say like, okay, well, we can, we can implement these kinds of solutions. We can, you know, just have affirmative action and not do anything beyond that. And that's uh -huh. considered progressive or you pay lip service to certain ideas or you traffic in certain kinds of theories without ever thinking about what they do for the society you live in. Um, and that's, I mean, that's always been deeply concerning for me. It's true that a lot of the problems that we see trickle down into academia or trickle back out in different ways, but we do have to recognize, I think that this is a very that this is a very privileged space and with it has relatively little impact on the rest of the world. Although this is something my friend is, this is a notion my friend is trying to disabuse me of. He's trying to convince me that I have more power than I, I think I'm in a very sort of disillusioned place right now as an academic. Um, so, I mean, all of that is, is open to revision for me, I think, as I get further into this field, think what I can do with it. But yeah, I mean, for now, those are sort of the concerns and, and observations I've been making in this field. What you said, Sherry, is, is fascinating. Um, it it's funny though because a little you, going into academics and academia now is different, mm -hmm. and and I can't say that going off to college in 1979 could be could be called a journey into academia, but I would like to talk for a moment about the clash, and and I'm going to try to not have this feel all self-serving and whatnot, but. I just, I had forgotten all about this huge mashup of worlds I had when I left Connecticut as an idealistic 17 year old who somehow with what I found later were racist parents, although not overtly, uh, but how I grew up all idealistic and, and egalitarian and I go off to Georgia Tech and Georgia and oh my God, everything was blue and gray. I mean, literally one of the roads was called the Blue and Gray Parkway. And and you had the the, the balls, all of the big formals for the um, fraternities, you know, the hoop skirts and the Confederate uh, 
They literally rented out in more Confederate uniforms. The guys did not tuxedos. And all of this was perfectly fine and accepted. And, and the jokes that they would say, I mean, it's awful. The things that were part of the culture of Atlanta were disgusting to me. And but if I ever tried to speak about them and say that, they just called me a northerner, right? And they immediately told me that I was not going to survive there if I spoke my mind, right? And then when I, um, a couple of years later, and I, I had a boyfriend and his family lived in Atlanta, going into that house was absolutely terrifying. I, I, I don't know if it <laughs> But it, I don't even want to go into it. I mean, the father, this man sitting at the dinner table, he actually, because he had been an Atlanta businessman in the 60s, and he actually still referred to Martin Luther King as a troublemaker. I mean, come on. It was horrifying. So, But this, this was my first glimpse that there was something wrong. But even then, I am ashamed to admit, but I admit loudly, and because it's important, because I'm pulling the Band-Aid of my life off of itself, that... I succumbed to being quiet. I didn't change my point of view at all, but I learned to not speak up because it was always, oh, she's going to roll her eyes and leave the table. Oh, she's uh, she's from Connecticut. You just can't pay any attention to her. She doesn't know what she's talking about. She doesn't live here and know what we have to what we have to deal with. What we have to deal with, and these were the white people. So it was horrible. It was horrible. But so that was a glimpse. And then I shut my eyes and then I really didn't think about it very much until this week. So that, that was not a trauma for me. That was an awakening that I chose to ignore. Um, I still felt passionately about equality, but I didn't do anything about it. Right. I, so we're so wrapped up tightly in that lovely bundle of privilege not even realizing that it is desensitizing us to the real world around us. So I just, I had to, when you were talking about that, and I'm thinking about going to a, a university where they're embracing diversity and they're trying to make things better there, even if it doesn't affect the real world. Well, I don't know what it's like in Atlanta now. I don't know exactly what's going on at Georgia Tech anymore. I suspect it's not as much better as we would hope it to be, but I'm at least hoping that they have outlawed hoop skirts and Confederate uniforms in parades and at formal events. But it, it is amazing. It, it, I, I shouldn't be at all surprised at how bad things are because I've seen how different it was in the South. I mean, shoot, even even when I was here, first moved to this area, driving around, and I said, they call it Lee Jackson Highway, you know, and I'm like, this is Jefferson Davis Highway? I mean, I was horrified, and it's still there. My car still tells me that that's the name of the road. I don't know if they've just gone back to calling it Route 1 or Richmond Highway, but that stuff is everywhere. That is everywhere. If you're going to pull down monuments there's nothing that's going to be left, uh, which is okay by me. But but what are we going to do? It, it's like we have to wipe it all off. I mean, we can't even call Washington Washington anymore, if that's the case, because he was also a slave owner. So what's up with that? Um, so how are we going to remake this society that was supposed to be a beautiful, open place for all, quote, people, unquote, but as stated in that paragraph of the essay I wrote, they very quickly defined people from Africa as not people. So it's horrifying. Um, yeah. 
I, ha I have ta talked myself into a corner of sadness. And <laughs> Ariel, my host, please oh. lift me. Well, I mean, <laughs> the, the thing that, you know, strikes me is, you know, getting back to uh, the way that Sherry was talking about how structural racism works in terms of academic spaces is also the same way it works in terms of American spaces at large. Like, you know, we say we're all about inclusion and diversity, but we have not prepared a place at the table. Right. You know, and so in a way, it doesn't even matter if you have a seat at the table, if you're on the menu, you know, yeah yeah so and uh you know um it you know i want to get back to this uh other quote about racism uh from james baldwin where he says racism is a problem of white people taking responsibility for themselves i am flesh of their flesh created by them White man's hatred is at its root terror of an entity entirely of their own imagination. Not only have we created an otherness ascribed specifically to African Americans because we were exploiting the resources from Africa by bringing Africans in chains to America, but we've also given this attitude of otherness to so many other groups over the ages, but no group has ever been subjugated as much. Uh, I wanted to take this back to Colson Whitehead, but really this idea that racism is a problem of white people taking responsibility for themselves. And yeah. that really white people have never been able to take care of themselves in some way. Yeah. And that exactly. therefore they've always had to create an other and project their own feelings onto an other. Yeah. Yeah. I think the phrase Baldwin uses for this is they invented the Negro problem in order to safeguard their own purity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we see this a lot still now in that, you know, white people don't want to take responsibility for not just the guilt, but the, the problem of educating themselves on this, right? And I think we, we talked about this in another conversation. They, they want to be comforted rather than hated because confronting this would mean some degree of historical and current self-hatred for everything that's, that's going on. And so like, I think before this particular moment in Black Lives Matter, there are a lot of, there were a lot of um, sort of like attempts to be re-educated or to account for the problem in any other way by white people where they, they would say things like, oh, can you, you know, can you help me understand this? Can you teach yeah. me about this? And sort of like putting the burden and the term emotional labor has come up a lot in talking about this, to have this like explained to them by somebody who will sugarcoat their own accountability and their own role in all of this so that they don't actually have to have to deal with it themselves or think about, you know, how complicit they've been right. or interrogate exactly. their own history. Yeah. Yeah. Because people want to say, you know, I quote, I didn't do it. I wasn't alive then. I didn't make it happen. But the responsibility isn't about having done it. It isn't even about letting it happen. 
it comes, it's much more fundamental. We have benefited from the racism. We have benefited from there not being competition as there should have been, right? The the white, the um, white Southerners after, as reconstruction was devastating, just ridiculous and horrible, but they were faced by being outnumbered by those that they had been subjugating. And their fears were that they were going to lose, their, they were no longer going to be in charge. They didn't know what they were going to do. And so they did all of the thing. They put all the stuff in place, Jim Crow and the behaviors, and then developed police forces to enforce those laws of subjugation. And, and then they closed their eyes. And then they just closed their eyes and they invented the myth that black people were lazy and needed to be taken care of and they're like an orchid you know and that whole thing and believed it because then when you look at blacks in society you saw people who hadn't achieved and the quote american dream as we said before was the bootstrap theory so if you see people that aren't doing well according to what america is supposed to be that means that they didn't try hard enough. I had a quote friend unquote that I broke up with who said, well, clearly you've done something really bad in your life. And she was talking to me. She said, clearly you've done something bad because God's punishing you by you not having any money, right? So, <laughs> but you take that viewpoint and you, tra and you transfer it to an entire race and then it gets built in systemically and then that's where we are and they their place is to be ridiculed for not being a success when we are the ones that made it impossible for them to be successful so yeah. it is a vicious circle yeah it is and and i was going to get back to what sherry was saying too i mean black lives matter is a movement has been going on for the last six years since the murder of trayvon martin and really it's it's been kind of appalling to me the number of white friends I have who insist that uh, black friends and friends who are people of color break it down for them, specifically in terms that are not offensive to them in some way. I can't yeah. tell you how many times I've had this conversation with uh, people I love. You know, white privilege is such an offensive term you know, why, why does it have to be so aggressive? I'm not a privileged person, you know, and, and then going to, you know, someone of color and asking them to explain to them, you know, in terms yeah. they can take that protect their feelings in some way. <laughs> right. Explain and it is, to me so I don't feel bad. Yeah. And, th and this is exactly what Sherry was getting at the emotional labor that white people are demanding from people of color, even now in this time where we have a little bit more awareness and understanding, is still very disturbing to me. Um, I have to say, like, for me doing this podcast, initially, I was a little nervous about it. I kept saying to myself, what right do I have as a white woman to speak out on these issues? It really should be you know, people of color who are coming on to discuss really like what are the main issues with racism and so forth. But again, that's another form of saying I'm abdicating responsibility. If I'm not speaking out when I think the message needs to be heard, that is 
hugely yeah. problematic. And, and ultimately, it needs to be everyone in this society taking responsibility for what has happened historically and relieving the burden from Black people to explain it to everyone else and break it down for them. So yeah. that's my soapbox for them. No, it's good. And I admit to but. being guilty, deliberately guilty of doing that because in a, uh, in a department meeting, um, I, I went ahead, but I acknowledged that I was guilty. And I asked the one African-American member of the science department at my school. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm doing this, but I'm asking you because, because I feel like if, if being part of the podcast that it seems like it's disingenuous somehow. And I, so I was in my quest for validation from the black American, right. But I got it. And she said, no, it's all right. I, I am getting asked things a lot, but I, I don't know. And, and it is exhausting. But then again, I guess I'm, I should be glad that you want to know how I feel about it. But she said, as long as what you say is honest, um, then, then it's good. But you do, you automatically want to, you think that you're doing it because you don't want to step on toes or you want to make sure you're getting everybody's point of view, but it really isn't the job of, African-Americans to tell us that we're okay and we can go ahead and talk about racism in America. We're Americans. So if we see something that's wrong, we do have a right to talk about it. If you Just see as, something, say something. If you see something, say something. Although that one always made me feel a little bit, it felt a little bit fascist, right? That well, whole it thing. is. In, in its original <laughs> intent, it is fascist. In this <laughs> application, it is not. Yeah, if or, but I'm yes. So it is the the responsibility of everyone because also not only that if there's white people out there with that still nurture their inner racists, it's horrible to say, but they're going to respond better hearing everybody talk about it. We need to see everyone talk about the problem as frequently as possible. And that was another thing that popped into my head is that. Um, and kids ask if this feels different from other times, right? From other times that the um, issues of race equality and the treatment of black Americans has come up and it does feel different, but what's really unusual, it has lasted a long time, but it just dawned on me that in our really short news cycle world now that it has continued to you know, take, to, to dominate the news cycle. I mean, every now and then, coronavirus sneaks back in there and you get a little something going on on the other side. But for people that have inculcated such incredibly short attention spans because of the internet, for people to still be pushing on and there's protests still every night, I think that that is remarkable that it that they haven't lost interest and moved on to some other thing that they want to do. So I think that's a, that's something. Yeah, that's something. And I want to just, you know, explain for a minute, though, um, kind of why I, I feel like this particular group of people is so important to me in terms of having this conversation, because I, I do understand that, you know, Ellen and I are white teachers and Sherry is a person of color. Yes. And I don't want that to feel like tokenism. It is actually because of her academic credential more than anything, as well as her unique perspective, having been at different institutions of power 
as well as the international perspective and encountering a lot of different forms of uh, kind of the immigrant experience as well as the international experience of what racism looks like. Um, I, I feel like all of those things brought into the conversation are important, but then I also feel like the intergenerational aspect is really important. Sherry is 15 younger, years younger than me, and Ellen is 20 years older than me. And I feel like because of that, we all have different experiences of racism in America. And again, like I also have lived outside the United States in three different countries, and so... Uh, both in Asia and Europe. And I feel very strongly that there are different forms that racism takes elsewhere in the world. And it is important to kind of see those outsider perspectives as well. But the way that James Baldwin talks about racism in I Am Not Your Negro and his various essays, it is very clearly a systemic issue very much born out of this idea of exploiting resources. And, you know, it's important to remember that race is the child of racism, not the other way around. I think it was Ta-Nehisi Coates who actually said that, um, mm. that we develop the racism to justify what we feel we need to. And then we develop the concept of race from that. So um, just kind of looking at a historical perspective on that. I'm, I'm currently reading White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo as well. Mm. And um, it's very interesting to me to kind of connect what she has to say with the works of Francis Galton and the way that white has been defined over the years and how different ethnic groups have become white over the years. And uh, I, I just wondered if you wanted to comment on that at all, Sherry. Yeah. And we've talked a little about tokenization and also the issue of, of representation. Um, and I think the Asian American community has been having a moment of, of reckoning um, and I've seen a lot of different perspectives on this. Um, Hassan Minhaj on Patriot Act has, has this amazing sort of call to arms to the Asian American community for sort of, for sort of standing by and, and allowing this to happen and buying into the myth of meritocracy and the model minority and, and all of these things, um, but which is still obviously giving lip service to and supporting and working actively against the interests of of Black America, um, and I mean, I, I see this a lot. Like the the uh, what is it? The bootstraps myth that Miss Babcock was talking about. I mean, that's definitely an attitude that's that's been cultivated by a lot of the, especially the older first generation of the Asian American community here. Um, and with representation, it's sort of like this is something Hassan Minhaj brings up, which is that if we have so many narratives of black excellence in mainstream media, how can we still say that there's still been like a historical setback that we're still suffering from in this country when, you know, there's Beyonce. And in a lot of ways that black excellence representation 
So one Beyonce makes up for everything, right? Exactly. She, like it occupies such a massive part of the American imagination that it somehow effaces all of the problems that we're currently going through. And it's, I mean, it's ridiculous because people don't have this, you know, double consciousness for white America. We still have all of these stories of, you know, I guess excellence in America of <laughs> balanced against the poverty of like, you know, white people in trailer parks and that doesn't seem to be an issue, but it can only, it's very zero sum because it's so tied to the, to the American conscience. And I think Asian Americans clearly, you know, a lot of the older generation don't have this sort of, don't have this sort of perspective. They feel perhaps even more like an outsider for, you know, linguistic reasons, cultural reasons. And for them, a lot of people, it's sort of like, well, if we have made it, there's no reason why other colored groups in America can't do it either. And it's a very superficial and late understand belated understanding of race in America, but it's, it's unfortunately very, very widespread. Um, but I, I mean, to some extent, I understand this because the brand of racism that we have in America is really uniquely violent and uniquely entrenched. And it is a, culture shock for anybody who decides to come here um, and, and understand it and to stay in this, this country for a while. Um, and reading through these different essays and novels of James Baldwin, who is so incredible at navigating different personalities yeah. um, between white men, black men, the European, the American, um, I feel a lot of sympathy towards it because it is sort of, there is a sort of desire for people who like, especially like somebody reading the Western canon, not having been born into it, not having inherited it, to sort of feel like you can escape the material, the very potent material issues of American racism by going into another country um, where those rules no longer apply. The same sort of underlying principles of American racism don't apply to you anymore. Um, and like, there's obviously like, there is racial prejudice, there is, universally anti-blackness um, that I think a lot of the international community is now dealing with as a result of looking at America and being terrified by what they see reflected in its in in, in this moment. Um, but I think as, as somebody who isn't who's doesn't identify with the Asian American community but sort of somebody who's both Asian and American um, it sort of felt like a message quite directed at me when I, in the documentary, when Baldwin says, you know, having been recalled from Paris to go back to America while the civil rights movement was going on, he felt it was time to come home and pay his dues. And it sort of feels like, or I think a lot of the people who are from different, you know, ethnic groups in America who are now realizing for the first time what it means to shoulder this American burden it's sort of like paying one's dues. Like it's time to learn, it's time to confront this. And even if you have the chance to escape to another community, you know, escape the rules of American racism by, by moving elsewhere, this is impossible to get away from now. And I, and I think like that realization has been, has been deeply important, not just for the white black tension in America, but for its entire diverse community as a whole. Thank you, Sherry, for those thoughtful words. I think this conversation is just the start. 
as uh, Baldwin himself said in that same talk to teachers that Ellen cited earlier, America is not the world, and if America is going to become a nation, she must find a way to use the tremendous potential and tremendous energy which the child represents. If this country does not find a way to use that energy, it will be destroyed by that energy. I think James Baldwin has wonderful words to describe the capacity we have as a nation to move forward from this moment. And I think it's essential that we all understand this as only the first step in terms of educating ourselves and moving forward. I would like to invite you all to join us for our next conversation, actually our next series of conversations. We will have a full week of Monday, Wednesday, and Friday episodes dropping on the topic of Black horror. This may seem like a strange thing to segue to, but it is my belief that a lot of the great social injustices have always emerged much more strongly in the worlds of sci-fi and horror because somehow blood and aliens make everything seem more palatable, uh, both to the censors and to our sensibilities. I hope you will join us for those conversations. And in the meantime, thank you so much to our guests. Ellen and Sherry. So it's thank been you so much. Very interesting. It's been good. Good talk. Yes.